I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our uh, series in this idea of life in the Spirit. And today we're going to realize, if we haven't yet, that Jesus himself was fully reliant upon the Spirit, even though he was God come in the flesh. And so we're going to be looking at that and how he was fully reliant on the Spirit. As we look through Luke chapter 4. Have you ever done something and you just stood back and were amazed about how truly weak you were and yet God did something amazing? Maybe you prayed over someone. Maybe you were just frightened out of your shoes and socks because you had to give your testimony and you had never done that in public before and you stood up and you shared your testimony and you felt like you just fumbled through your words and yet so many people came up to you in tears and said, thank you, that testimony so ministered to me. And you just step back and you say, God, thank you. You are amazing. Uh, the men in my little group, we looked at the uh, life. Of, well, actually, all the guys looked at the life of Gideon and Gideon's 300 and how God did something absolutely amazing. But he had to whittle Gideon's army down from 32,000 against the Midianite army of 130,000. 32,000 still wasn't enough. In God's perspective, it was too many. And I just want you to know, I would rather have Gideon's 300 than his 32,000. And the reason for this is because God worked miracles in that situation in which Gideon was weak, in which Israel was weak. And the only one that could ever receive praise were not those mighty 300, but it was God himself. I want us to talk about the anointing of God. When God's spirit comes upon us and he does something out of the unusual, out of the out of the usual, there we go, and he uses you. I remember a time, I mean, I, I love preaching. There are certain things I recognize that uh, abilities and, uh, and yet weaknesses in my own life, God tends to still use me in those weaknesses. But some areas that God has just chosen not to use me uh, very much, and that would be in the area of healing, for example. Uh, though people have been healed, and, and you have laid hands on the sick, and according to Scripture, we do this, anoint them with oil, and God heals. Uh, one particular occasion just blew me out of the water, and I, I remember there was a young man I'd been discipling in the church many years ago, and he chose to invite his dad. Now, understand, his relationship with his dad was horrible. Um, it, he was... He had to work through so much bitterness because of how his dad had treated him. And yet God had brought tremendous healing and ministry in his heart. And so he, be he began to reach out to his mom and his dad and inviting them to church. And they started coming. And he and I just looked at each other like, they're actually here. And not only did they visit, but they actually started coming. And one year, about one year later, I remember preaching. And at the very, I can't even remember what the sermon was about, right? And I, I, just pray, I just said, you know what? I feel as if there is someone here, and God wants to heal you, and, and God wants to do something amazing in your life. And can I, I'm supposed to pray for you. Who am I supposed to pray for? Now, I'm out of my comfort zone, understand. And this dad just raised his hand just high enough above the heads, and I could see him. 
And I, I walked over to him, and I sat down next to him. Actually, his wife scooted over so I could sit down next to him. And I said, how can I pray for you? And he was silent. It, it was as if he just could not speak. This guy could speak very well, mind you. He was speechless, and his wife leaned over, and she said, the rheumatoid arthritis in his hands. I said, can I pray for your hand? And he shook his head yes. So I had him put both of his hands in my hand and then put my other hand on top, and I just prayed, just a simple prayer. Now understand, this guy is not saved. He does not know Jesus at all. He had lived a, a truly uh, wicked life in many respects. We were amazed that he had been there for a year, just about. And I'm praying over him, and I said, silently, oh, God, help me. <laughs> and I just prayed the simple prayer. And we were done. And he had this look in his eyes like, I need something else. And I looked at him and I said, can I pray for you for something else? And he, he tried to say something, but he couldn't. And the Lord opened my heart to understand he wanted to know Jesus. And I asked him, I called him by name and I said, do you want to know Jesus this morning, right now? And he shook his head, yes, and tears were filling his eyes. And at that moment, his son that I've been discipling was in the nursery, and they called him. He said, your dad is giving his heart to Christ. And he came out, and we just gathered around him. And we, I walked him through, and he, he cried out to Jesus for salvation. And it was truly amazing. God began to change his life and restore his relationship with his son. And I remember about a week or two later, I, I decided to pop by. He had his own store. I popped by the store, and I just... Uh, he was in the back, and so I really didn't have a chance to talk with him um, because he was so busy. And so I spoke with his wife, and he said, Pastor Mike, it's amazing. My husband is in the back, and because of his rheumatoid arthritis the last five years, he's not been able to do any kind of repairs. That's what he's doing right now. And you're not going to believe this, but he hasn't picked up the guitar in five years, and he's been playing the guitar. God healed his arthritis. And I was like, whoa. God, you are so amazing. And when you're in a situation like that, you can't, you can't reach back to pat yourself on the back. You know, this is totally a God thing. And he came into this man's life, revolutionized his life, transformed him, and healed him to boot just so that he would get the glory. And I want to tell you, God is in the business of using his people with this anointing that we're going to look at this morning to do things just like that. He's going to pull you out of your comfort zone. You're going to think there is no way God is going to do this. And guess what? God is going to do this. And he's going to use you because you simply said, I'm here and I'm willing. God will purposely put you in those situations where you cannot say, I got this, and rely on your own strength or knowledge or gifts or whatever else you think you have, if they really are even yours, but you must rely on him. And as the phrase that we have used in the past, source 
the Spirit. Business term out there, but, but it's a term that, is, that helps us understand this concept of fully relying on the Spirit of God, sourcing the Spirit. And we look at this passage today, and that is exactly what Jesus says that he must do in his ministry. So let's look at that. In Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 14, let's look at this concept of anointing. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Say that with me, church. In the power of the Spirit. Just a little bit louder because I want this to resonate in your spirit. In the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth. Now, understand that as much as a year had elapsed between verses 15 and 16. Luke doesn't tell us about this, but that's fine. But he says he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the, on the Sabbath he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, this is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. What is he going to say to this is what they're thinking. Verse 21. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words, literally words of grace, words of grace. Amazed at the words of grace that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? Remember, he was the carpenter, right? Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, excuse me, Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Notice the transition. Amazed at his gracious words, and now they're furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, this specifically speaks about the anointing on Jesus. The word Christ, or Messiah, Messiah, actually, literally translated means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed one. Now, 
for us to really understand the impact, I'm going to give us just a very brief review. Over the last three weeks, we have looked at the previous uh, 12 verses here, and we have looked at those three temptations. I'm going to call them testings. The Greek word for tempt and test is the same Greek word, <clears throat> just translated two different ways. Jesus was tested. Remember, I used the illustration of a cup that's being shaken to see what's inside. And obviously, what did we see in Jesus' cup as it was shaken during these 40 days and these three tests that are recorded, and I'm sure there were many more? We saw him sourcing the Father and the Spirit, relying completely on his God. We understood that Jesus had given up certain glories, did not give up his deity in any way, just gave up certain glories and rights as he, God, took on human flesh. He didn't just take it on. He became flesh. And the word became flesh. It's not like, well, anyway, let me not get into that too deeply again. But Jesus, in finding himself in human frailty, his glory was veiled. He had then taken that choice to not do miracles based on the very fact that he was the son of God and God come in the flesh. But as we read here, the spirit of the sovereign Lord anointed him. Now, as he goes through this, I'm going to come back to that. When he goes through the wilderness, 40 days, he has tested these three times. Now, the first test, we see that Jesus did not source himself, but the father. The devil used this title, Son of God, with a focus on the fact that he is God. If you are the Son of God, if you are God, then take this stone and turn it into bread. You're hungry. You've been, you've been fasting for 40 days. Come on, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus realized that he never seeks to minister to himself. Every single one of Jesus' miracles were for others. The Father, the Spirit working through him to others. And he was not going to make this an exception. And he makes this quote. He says, man does not live by bread alone. Matthew continues on with the quote, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it takes us back to Deuteronomy 8 in which the Israelites were humbled by being in need, sometimes terrifying need when Pharaoh and the Red Sea surrounded them. What are we going to do? God provided a way through the sea. And they were constantly tested, humbled and tested to see would they truly trust God or would they grumble? Guess what they did? They grumbled. They failed the test time after time. And so as a result, God had to take that Moses generation is what I'll call it. And they, they died in the wilderness after 40 years. And God raised up a new generation, a Joshua generation, to take the land that eventually were filled with faith. They eventually, even though they were discomforted many times, chose to source God, rely upon him. And God did amazing things. Read the book of Joshua. But here Jesus is saying, I, my life does not simply consist on what I'm going to eat, but my life comes from God the Father. And so we realize as we move now into this anointing, if you're going to walk in the anointing, you must completely rely 
on the Father, the Spirit. From him, I receive life. I am spiritually minded, not just physically minded, spiritually minded, and I am fully reliant upon you. The second testing, we realized that Satan had another plan that was opposite God's plan. Satan's plan was plan B. God's plan was plan A. Plan A cost a lot. It was the cross. But Satan said, oh, you know what? Let's just cut to the chase. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go through all of the pain and suffering. I'm elaborating, of course. I don't think that Satan really fully understood the cross anyway. He was probably wondering, why is Jesus coming here? Why is he even on this earth? What does he think he's going to accomplish? I'll oppose him at every turn. And Satan did oppose him at every turn. But you see, he didn't understand the cross. But he gave a shortcut. Whatever Jesus you're after, I'm sure you want to win the people. However you're going to do that, let me just give them to you. And Jesus said, you know what? I am not going to bend the knee to you. I am not going to follow your quick and easy route. I'm going to follow the route and the will and the plan of God my Father, which was a lot of sacrifice and a lot of pain and took a lot of time. As a matter of fact, it's been 2,000 years to win the nations, and we're still moving in that direction. And we realize that if you're going to walk in this anointing, for Jesus to walk in this anointing when his cup was shaken, what is it that came out? Complete trust in God's plan for his life. And we were challenged, trust the Father. Trust him. He has an awesome, amazing plan for your life. The devil has another plan. It's a shortcut. But shortcuts never work. In the end, that's when you realize it. In the end, you realize, wow, what an utter waste of my life. And it's easy for us to pursue the things of the world, thinking, wow, this is God's plan for my life. And God may bless some of you with wealth. Praise God. But if that's what you're pursuing, Proverbs has a lot to say to your heart. Plan A, what is God's will? I will trust in that because I am fully following him. And Jesus quoted, worship God and serve him only. That's what he said to the devil. And then the last test. Was Jesus fully secure in the Father's love? And again, the devil used the title Son of God with an emphasis on son. You're the son. He's the father. Do you, do you really think he loves you? Do you? Can you really trust him? Do you think he loves you that much? Let's, let's put that love to the test. Jump off the pinnacle. Let's see if he sends his angels to catch you. And Jesus said this, do not, I do not test the Lord your God. And we found that we can test him every time we question his love. Wondering, God, I'm going through that. Do you see what I'm going through? Do you really have a plan for my life? Do you even care about me? And I'm going to tell you, for you to walk in the anointing that God has for you, you are going to need to source the Father's love. And you need to to. to, to be secure and rock solid in the fact that he loves you, he cares about you. And even though we go through hard times, we realize that God's love never fails. And in this last test, let me remind you, there was one king in the Old Testament who failed miserably in this. To the degree that he lost his anointing. See, kings in the Old Testament were anointed by the Spirit. They didn't have the Spirit living in them. They had to be anointed by the Spirit. In the New Testament, Jesus said, not only is the Spirit with you, but he shall be, do you remember, in you. 
And so we in the New Testament, we have this gift of the Spirit, and he's in us, and he desires, the book of Acts tells us, to anoint us and empower us for ministry and to be used by him as we source the Spirit. And so King Saul was a very insecure leader. He was filled with jealousy. When he saw David being successful, he tried to crush David. Actually, he tried to kill him. On two different occasions, he threw a spear at him. A complete insecure leader. And it says that the Spirit of God left Saul and Saul became controlled by an evil spirit. And if you're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16, the very next verse, it says, and the Spirit of God came upon David. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He was secure in the Father's love. And it says here in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, this is from David, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's wrestling with these thoughts, understand. And then he concludes this short psalm in verses five and six. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. That is being fully reliant Upon the Father's love and being secure, rock solid, secure in his love. God, I don't understand what you're doing and I don't understand why it seems you're rejecting me. But you have been good to me and you will be good to me. And I want those words to resound in your heart. The Father has been good to you and he will continue to be good to you. That is his heart for you. He hasn't kicked you to the curb. It might feel like that at times. David goes on, I'm wrestling with these thoughts. I don't understand. My enemy's triumphing over me, God. I'm about to go under for the last time. And God steps in because that is the nature and the heart of God the Father. That's who we serve. And so based on these three tests, he now, Jesus now leaves the wilderness. How? In the power of the Spirit significant time of Jesus' cup being shaken, and we can see these three things just so paramount coming to the surface, so visible that we desperately need. And as Jesus now has this opportunity to minister in his hometown, he's given a scroll, and the custom would be for a visiting uh, young man, uh, rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi, we don't know who mentored him in his, generally at 12 years of age, a rabbi would mentor a young man. Uh, we don't know who that is. Tradition suggests certain things, but Jesus was more than likely mentored. But more importantly, he learned to be mentored from his father. And he would get away in early time in the morning and spend time with his father. But he comes to Nazareth, and he comes in the power of the Spirit, and as the custom, a scroll was given to him, and he's going to read, and then in the Jewish culture, you don't stand up to preach or teach, you actually sit down. I'm, I'm going to stand today if you don't mind. But in their culture, they would sit down. So Jesus sits down, and he begins to teach them, and the very first words out of his mouth is, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? 
that this passage is a messianic passage. They all knew this. This is going to be fulfilled by the Messiah, and you're telling me it's fulfilled today? Now, I don't know what he preached, but there were words of grace. Because that's what the Son of God is all about, isn't it, church? He is about grace and the unveiling of God's grace to his people. And I want us now to just take several minutes and look at five different things. He is anointed by the Spirit, it says. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. That's what Isaiah 61 says. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to do five things. Five things. Now, before I get into that, I want to make sure that I have, have covered my notes here. Jesus, according to John 4.34, had the Spirit without limit. And I believe he had the Spirit without limit, not just because he was the Son of God. Not just because the Father said, you know what, I'm just going to give you, I mean, you're my favorite. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the Spirit without limit. It is because Jesus earned that right, if you will. When his cup was shaken, he was found fully worthy to have the spirit without limit. That's important in your wilderness experience. Can God entrust you with his anointing? And so it says that he had the spirit without limit. And in sourcing the spirit, he does these five things. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 to 33, you find a recipe. It is a recipe for the very special anointing oil for priests only. You were to anoint the priests, and it apparently was a very valuable oil. It smelled very nice. However, the command was given in this. He says, Number one, anoint only priests with this. And number two, do not duplicate this for your own personal use to use as a perfume. Don't do that. If you do either of these two things, this is what God said, you'll be put to death. That's how serious this anointing oil was. And I'm just going to let you know, because this is a shadow. That anointing oil is a shadow. It represents the spirit the body, it says in Scripture, the body is found in Christ. And I'm just going to tell you this, that there is only one anointing. It cannot be duplicated. The devil tries to do that. The man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that works counterfeit miracles according to the power of Satan, he tries to duplicate it, but he cannot. I remember one particular gentleman, I'm not going to mention his name, who came to Central Florida, and uh, he began a an evangelistic service. Um, he began preaching, and then he told a story in which he had said he had a vision. And the, in the vision, an angel appeared to him and said, preach the angel. They've heard about Jesus. Preach the angel. And he said this. It, while he, in his evangelistic crusade, and it was just going on and on and on. He was there invited for a few days, and then it, it went on to weeks and weeks. And it started off where he was preaching the gospel, and he began to veer off course. 
And people would tell stories. He's, he would say, God just spoke to me and said, kick this lady in the face and I'll heal her. Just really odd, off the wall. Yeah, we laugh. Are you serious? You really think the Spirit of God is going to tell you? to? It, it, oh, wow. Okay. One particular gentleman was healed of cancer. He got it back in three days. I'm just going to tell you that when Satan tries to duplicate what God does, he does a half-baked job at best. At best. This evangelist eventually ran off with his secretary. I understand that he's been restored. I pay, place no judgment. I, I don't know the situation well enough to, to say anything further than that. But he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And people were healed. People caught his deliverance ministry on video, put it on YouTube, and it was the most chaotic mess I've ever been exposed to. Just so much confusion and it was anything but God, it seemed, at work there. The devil can try to counterfeit and look like God. He, he appears as an angel of light, masquerading as an angel of light. Paul tells us this. But when he does something, it is nothing compared to what God will do through you when he anoints you with his spirit to accomplish his plan A for your life. And so, Jesus' anointing in these five areas, first he says that he came to preach good news to the poor. Now, I assure you that the good news is good for the poor as well as the rich. His point is not the those who are financially poor, but those who are spiritually poor, those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who stand in this the filthy clothing of their sin. And that was me until I was 14 years of age. And I'd grown up in a church. I'd been exposed to the preaching of the word. I did as, I, I tried to get those little 40 winks of sleep in between, you know, between the first song and the last song of the service, and everything I could, and, and I closed my ears to that, and I thought that I was walking with God, and of course I'm a Christian because I go to church, and I remember my brother telling me, saying this, Mike, you don't go to church and therefore you're a Christian any more than you stand in a garage and therefore you're a car, and I thought about that, and I said, that sounds so silly, but it was so true, and that was me thinking I was a Christian, and God had to break through. Age 14, God changed my life. Raised in a Christian home, God changed my life. For the first time at age 14, I understood what it meant to believe in Jesus. I was poor. I was spiritually bankrupt. I had nothing. I stood before God, convicted of my sins, I stood before God in filthy rags. That's what Isaiah says. All your righteousness, Mike, all your righteousness were like filthy rags to God. Nothing. Your best efforts to be good? Uh, no. Filthy rags. Everything you did to try and get right with God? Boy, I was even reading the Bible. Granted, the book of Revelation, because I thought it was so fascinating, but filthy rags. My heart was corrupt. And I needed the gospel to take this poor 
young man and make him rich in Christ. And I'm just going to tell you if this morning you are poor. Yes, maybe financially poor. God has some plans for you. But spiritually poor. God wants to take that poverty if you were to lay it before him and completely change your life to make you rich in God. The good news is just that. He has riches for you. In his kingdom, forgiven of sins, cleansed, renewed in Jesus' name. The second thing that he does is he says he comes to proclaim. This is the anointing of the Spirit, understand, to preach the good news. To preach the good news. And the very beginning, the gospel writers say, and Jesus went from town to town preaching the good news of the kingdom. The good news. Because in this kingdom, totally different than the, the world outside. As a matter of fact, this new kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom. Everything about it is so different than what the world talks about, what makes people great. No, this kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you learn to be the servant of all. It seems to be so upside-down. In this kingdom... There is good news. There is hope. And so Jesus began to preach that good news. And it all pointed back to him as the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. The second thing is that he came to bring, pro, excuse me, proclaim freedom for the prisoners or the captives. <coughs> now understand that my spiritual bankruptcy led me into an enslavement to sin, an addiction to sin. I could do nothing else but sin. Try as hard as I may. I could not get out of this trap. I could put on the best front ever to look like the, the good kid down the street, but I was anything but, and I knew that, and there was something wrong, and I knew that, and, and, and it just stirred in my heart, God, fix me. Fix me, God. I was, a, I was a prisoner. I needed freedom. All of you, before you came to Christ, you were locked up in sin. A prisoner, a slave. You were spiritually poor. You had filthy rags. All of your righteousness is... No. But God had good news for you. He wanted to come and bring freedom. He wanted to unlock that prison cell. And this is the anointing that came upon Jesus. And to understand, as I'm talking about this anointing, realize that the anointing is not just in the words spoken, that they're spoken well. There are many people in our day who speak well. There are many people, and, and I, I just look at these pastors, and some of them are very godly. Some of them, I don't know. But they speak so well, and they, they just, words just roll. They're very poetic. They, when they preach, they never make mistakes. I mean, for myself, I stumble over my words many times. For these guys, they speak so well. That is not the anointing. Jesus probably misspoke at times. Can you believe that? He probably misspoke at times. That would be within human error. It's not a sin. But that's not the anointing. The anointing is power by the Spirit coupled with those words that then step in 
should a person receive them by faith and change hearts. They are anointed by God to knock on the heart of the door to help unstop ears so that they can hear. That is the anointing of the Lord. It is not someone who can jump up and down and thump on his Bible and shout. That is not the anointing. The anointing is when the Spirit of God takes those words and transforms lives. That's the anointing. And I pray, pray that for your pastor. Pray that for one another because I'm not the only anointed one here. Each of you are anointed because you have the Spirit. And I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself. But you have the Spirit of God in you. You are the temple of God. He lives in you. The book of Acts says he not only wants to live in you but empower you for ministry to a broken world. We're going to get into that now. And in this brokenness in this world, we're spiritually poor. We're prisoners. And then he says, and to, he sent me to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Now, the Hebrew, if you were to look back in Isaiah 61, it words it this way, release from darkness for the prisoners. Not recovery of sight for the blind, release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, understand that Luke is quoting word for word right here, the Septuagint. That is, around 250 B.C., Hebrew scholars that knew Greek realized that their culture was rapidly changing and was adopting the Greek language. It was actually becoming a worldwide language. And so they took the Old Testament written in Hebrew and translated into Greek. <clears throat> the apostles, like Paul, when he'd go into a Greek-speaking church, would read from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. So he, he, would, he would read and preach from the Septuagint. And Luke right here, not that Jesus spoke, because there's a Jewish audience. He's, he's, Jesus is reading the Hebrew, but Luke quotes the Septuagint here. So if the Hebrew says release from darkness for the prisoners, what does that mean recovery of sight for the blind? Because the blind that have no sight live in darkness, and they are prisoners to that darkness. Now, I believe that Jesus physically healed people, physically healed people, raised people from the dead, cleansed the lepers, opened the blinded eyes. And so we can understand this physically, but even more so spiritually, in which our eyes are blind. And it's amazing how and you've probably done this. You're talking to someone about the truth of God's word. And it seems so clear to you that there's got to be a God. How can, you, how can we truly live and, and believe that there is no God? And I understand the struggle with the good God allowing suffering, but there is a reason for that I'm not going to get into now. But I, I, I'm just amazed at how there is so much evidence for there being a God and for that God coming to this earth in the person of Jesus and actually raising him from the dead. There is so much evidence. And yet when you present this with people, they're like, what? No, 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 no. Now, you, you think there's a God? And you can present evidence after evidence, and yet... They will step back and they will still believe what they want to believe. And the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this age has blinded their eyes. Guess what, church? 
you were in those shoes, Tim. Your eyes were blinded. You could not see the truth. I was raised in a Christian home. I heard the gospel countless times, and yet my heart was hardened because I was not able to get it. I was not able to really understand what it meant to believe in Jesus and give my heart to him. It was still my life. I wanted it. God, I'll put it on loan to you here and there. I'll I'll try to live for you while I'm at school, though it's hard. I'll try to live for you when I'm in my home, but I tell you what, my brothers, Lord, you don't know my brothers. And this is hard, God, okay? I'm going to try to live for you, but you know what? There's only a limit to which I can deal with these guys, these brothers of mine. And I'm sure they said that about me too, complaining to God. But the truth is, I was blinded, and I could not see. And Jesus needed to open my eyes. Now I'm going to get into this next phrase. And as I was personally studying this, the Lord just did something in my heart, and it broke my heart, and I just began to cry before the Lord, to realize the extent of the power of God. It says here, the fourth thing is to release the oppressed. Now, I did say that Luke is quoting from the Septuagint, word for word. Every single red red word that you see here is an English translation. I understand that, but it is a direct quote from the Septuagint, except this phrase. And Luke purposefully changes it. He goes to the Hebrew, and he gives his own translation on this phrase. And as I thought about that, I said, God, why would your spirit prompt Luke to give his own translation here and break away from the Septuagint? I mean, he's just, he could just, it was so simple, just continue to write out what the Septuagint says, and then I began to look at it. Now, the NIV translates it to release the oppressed. The Septuagint actually reads, to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the brokenhearted. That sounds fine, Luke. Why don't you say with that? Instead, Luke writes this. This is a literal translation of what he says, to send away in freedom the broken, crushed ones. To send away in freedom the broken, crushed ones. Now, I want you to realize that Jesus' purpose was not just to rescue the lost. It wasn't just for your eyes to be opened to the truth of the gospel, for you to encounter this amazing new life in God, but it was for you to be sent out in freedom to do the very same thing that Jesus is doing here. That you too would be anointed. That you too would be like Christ, a Christian, a little Christ, if you will. Now, he needs to do something in our hearts. 
if he's going to send us out and, and preach the good news and see recovery of sight for the blind, to, to see those who, who need healing healed, to, for eyes to be opened, the, the poor to come to this realization that they can be rich in God, to proclaim the good news and to be anointed in this. And God is going to use you in so many different ways. And he generally takes your life experience and how you have been transformed and through that life experience now use you to minister to very similar people, to a broken world. And he wants to send you out. He wants to heal you first and then send you out in freedom. And then we, he comes across this word. And instead of saying brokenhearted, he calls them broken, crushed ones. Let me explain it this way. If you go into my home and in my dining room, we have a hutch. Excuse me, my wife has a hutch. And it's about six feet or so wide. And it is filled with, in my opinion, absolutely beautiful china. Teapots, teacups, a few stuffed animals for cuteness, some hummels, some other figurines. And it's just beautiful. And you look at each one. We even got one plate when we were on our honeymoon in Bermuda. And you can see the Bermuda plate up there. And little I, I, I got her a coffee, uh, excuse me, a teapot and a teacup that go together, and, and it's just beautiful. So I, I brought one of her cups with me this morning, and it's right here. <laughs> and you're looking at it, and you're thinking, wait, 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 Pastor Mike, that's, that's not real, okay? That's just a picture. And it's because my wife would never allow me to bring one of those real <laughs> teacups. Never. Never. You'd be afraid either in transit it would get broken or I would be showing you and it would slip out of my hand and it would break and it would be crushed, broken into hundreds of pieces. And she knows as well as I do that I am not that good of a repairman to glue all those pieces back together again. And here's the point. You were like this teacup and it was dropped. And because of sin in your life, it shattered into hundreds of pieces beyond human repair. I don't care if you get the number one selling book in America, generally a self-help book, and see what that does to help you. Apart from Jesus, you cannot be healed. I don't care what the greatest psychologist says or sociologist says for how people or societies can be healed that healing is only found in jesus because sin crushed me and i was shattered into hundreds of pieces beyond human repair but you see this is the good news we serve a god who sent his son purposely with a plan to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. And only in Jesus' name is there healing. And he is the one who is able to take all of those hundreds of broken slivers and put them back together so that my wife, should I have dropped her cup, would step back and say, wow, that is amazing. It looks so perfect. 
but you are a perfection in process, understand. That perfection is going to wait until heaven, but you are in progress. But he has healed you, and he, through Christ, the cross, the resurrection, he has put you back together again. And you have a testimony, a story of how he did that. And it was an absolute miracle. And now he wants to send you out in freedom to tell others about it. That is going to take his anointing. Jesus was anointed to do that. Not that he was crushed in that way. Though we know that he was crushed for our transgressions, wasn't he? Isaiah 53. The crushed one became the healer of the crushed, the oppressed. I was broken to smithereens, and Jesus put me back together. That is the healing of our God to the degree where he now sends you out. Do this. Share this. Share your story. Tell him what I did for you. And I, I tell you what, there is an excitement that grips your heart. You remember the story of the, the 12-year-old girl, and she had died. And Jesus came to the house too late, and the mourners were already there. And Jesus said, I'm, I've come to wake her up. And they all laughed. You've got to be kidding me. Seriously? She's dead. She's gone. Forget about it. And he sent them out. And he went into the room with Peter and James and the, and the dead and he said, damsel, arise. And she came back to life. Can you imagine the dad looking at this and his daughter coming back to life? And he takes her hand and he helps her up. And it's, he says, don't tell anybody. But guess what? He went out and he told everybody. I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody what Jesus did for me. And that's what beats in your heart. But Jesus doesn't say, don't tell anybody. He says, go and make disciples. And he says, proclaim this good news. You are the crushed one. You are the repaired one. Tell somebody about it. And I will anoint you with my spirit to do just that. And it's not just because you're going to be so good with your words. It's, you're going to probably be so terrified, especially the first time you do it. But God's spirit will anoint you. God's spirit will speak through you with power to bring conviction you might find you might see that there is no change. That elderly gentleman that got healed of his rheumatoid arthritis had been in the church. He had heard the gospel for an entire year. Seeds were planted, and then God broke through. And it concludes number five with this: to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can look at all the commentaries, but they're all going to tell you this, that this is a purposeful reference to the year of Jubilee. Do you know what happens in the year of Jubilee? It comes every 49 years. <clears throat> in the year of Jubilee, several things happen. Number one, <clears throat> if you had sold your property, remember that was a family inheritance. If you sold your property or a part of it, you would have the opportunity, or at least your relative, your, your children's children, if they're still around, to and that 50th year to be able to purchase and redeem that property back. Because of your poverty, you had to sell it. But now you can redeem it back. If you were poor and had actually sold yourself into slavery to pay off your debt, 
that debt was completely canceled. All slaves were set free. If you had any debt, any debt, imagine credit card companies living back then. It was all canceled, wiped away. The credit card probably put over a, a magnetic field of some sort. Doesn't work anymore. All debt canceled. I'm sorry. Debt co collectors, you've got the wrong home. That debt has been canceled. And so all debts were canceled. All slaves were freed. And you could redeem your property. Isaiah 63, 4. Isaiah calls this the year of my redemption. The year of my redemption. You see, Jesus has purchased you for himself. Jesus has called you out of darkness. Jesus has, by his own blood, the cost of his very life, purchased you for his very own possession. And then lastly, just a word about this anointing. In John 14, 31, the Bible says even Jesus himself did exactly as his father commanded him. He did only what he saw the father doing. John 14, 12, it says, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. You, too, can be doing the very things that Jesus did because he went away and sent his spirit, and you have that spirit in you. As you read through the book of Acts, Paul stood up in the Sanhedrin. I am sure that in his own strength, his knees would have been knocking together and trembling. And it says, and filled with the spirit, Peter said. And when he was done talking, they said to themselves, aren't these the followers of Jesus? These are unlettered men. They don't have PhDs. They, they're not rabbis. And they could tell that they had been with Jesus. You know what? Man, that's what I want. Being with, I want to be one recognized. Mike, yeah, he's been with Jesus. And you know that you've been with Jesus because at that given moment, the Spirit of God fills you and he speaks through you. And beyond your abilities, people's eyes are opened. And the crushed are healed. But I'm going to tell you this. That number one, that anointing is going to be completely focused on Jesus. The Spirit comes to testify about Jesus. And you might get the reception that Jesus got. When he was done preaching, and I'm sure it was a nice sermon. And they said, what words of grace he had. But they had no faith. They did not respond. Matthew and Mark tell us about this. Jesus could do no miracles except lay his hands on a few for them to be healed. A few. Everywhere Jesus went, everyone was brought to him. All the sick came to him, and he healed all of them. He goes to Nazareth, lays his hands on a few, and they're healed, and that's it. They have no faith. And Jesus rebukes them for this. So they drive him to the edge of a cliff. Now, do you remember in the third testing? Satan quoted from Psalm 91, to catch you lest you dash your foot against a stone or stub your toe on the sidewalk. 
what he was getting at? If the crowd had forced Jesus over the cliff, guess what would have happened? The angels would have caught him. But instead, and I don't understand the miracle of this, Jesus just did it, his angry pursuers forcing him to the edge of the cliff, he just walks right through the crowd. The angels, I am sure, covered their mouths, grabbed their arms, did whatever was necessary, and they protected the Son of God. And I'm just going to tell you this, that when you go out in the power of the Spirit, the angels will protect you, and the angels will keep you safe, and God will allow you to minister in the power of the Spirit. God will allow you to walk through the crowd. So here's my challenge for you this morning. When your cup is being shaken, maybe this past week, what's been coming up? Do you find that like the Israelites, you complain? Or do you find that you completely source God, his word, his truth, his promises, and you know that it's going to be okay? And so as James says, you are able to encounter every trial with pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And you can be filled with joy. And when your cup is shaken, you can respond with joy. And you can respond in love. And you can respond because you have found yourself completely dependent upon God, totally in love with Jesus Christ and pursuing him. And because of that, the Spirit of God anoints you to use you. And I'm going to close in prayer right now. But can I ask you this? Are you one of those crushed ones? Has the world dropped you? And do you find your life in broken pieces? Hundreds. Beyond repair. Oh, you've tried. You've tried to find repair. You have tried to seek help. And yet, you are still broken. Then I want to give you an invitation this morning. Try as hard as you may. You will never see your life put back together again, ever. But when you turn to Jesus, and this is why he went to the cross, that your sins be forgiven, that he purchased you for his very own, that he takes you out of darkness into his light, that he takes you from brokenness and he begins this healing process and puts you back together because he wants to use you as a vessel that was broken to testify to his healing.